The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello, this is Cambridge 105 Radio. Many thanks to Alex and Amy for the last couple of hours, but now it's a very warm welcome to the Cambridge Film Show, your fortnightly helping of all things cinema. Plenty for us to discuss today as we share our thoughts on no less than nine films, hopefully, across your big and small screens. My name is Yossi Osman, and joining me today we have Lorcan O'Neill. Hello. Matt Taylor. Hello. Nick Menzies Kitchen. Hello. And Luke Irwin. Hello. So today, I hope we've got a little something for everything. We've got eccentric sci-fis, cutting dramas, and a cult classic turned musical. We will be chatting about Poor Things, The Holdovers, Good Grief, Society in the Snow, Mean Girls, One More Shot, The Boys in the Boat, The Beekeeper, and Role Play. We'd better get on with it then. First up, let's talk about Poor Things. She's an experiment. Good evening. Her brain and her body are not quite synchronized. But she's progressing at an accelerated pace. Tell me, where did she come from? I shall. For it is a happy tale. So, our first film up for discussion today is Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things, the inventive, unhinged take on Frankenstein, starring Emma Stone and Mark Ruffalo, among others. This is Lanthimos's latest after historical black comedy The Favourite, which also starred Stone, and it tells the story of Bella Baxter, a woman who is brought back to life by eccentric scientist Dr Godwin Baxter, played by Willem Dafoe. I'm, I'm actually, Lorcan, I think I'm going to come to you. I mm. think you're a fan of this film. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about it and your initial feelings? Well, I, th- I did enjoy it, but I think I'm probably a slightly more lukewarm uh, reception oh, okay. on this than, than p- potentially m- most of the others I've talked to. Um, I think positives, all the performances are very good. There's plenty of Oscar buzz around it. Emma Stone's incredible, and uh, Mark Ruffalo's hilarious, and Willem Dafoe's just lovely, and Chris, shout out to Chris Abbott. I always love whenever he pops up in anything. The set design's great, the costumes are great, the special effects are great, and it's very, very funny. Um, I think for me, it's hard to talk about because a lot of it, for me, falls apart in the last like 10 minutes. I think they made a lot of poor decisions um but i think some, something like barbie can get away with having kind of like hyper reductive gender dynamics uh, because it's just kind of this pop, bubblegum kind of pop film whereas this film's kind of taking itself quite seriously while having fun uh and it just becomes kind of a running joke where every man she runs into she's like manic pixie dream girl and then every man she runs into it's like oh he's a real character oh wait no he's just a one-dimensional flat cardboard cutout and then they're trying to say something while having these kind of flat characters, which for me didn't quite gel, but it's the film's certainly an experience, and it's uh, it's well worth kind of seeing on the big screen. I think. Okay, it's interesting you talk about that because I've looked at some of the reviews, and Matt and Nick, I know you've seen this, so either of you can come in here. But it's been quite divisive. Some of the some people are hailing this as a you know a really feminist film about liberation. Other people I've seen in their reviews, they think it's extreme, they think it's exploitative, they are talking about sort of gratuitous adult scenes and not not any real message coming through. Do either of you have any thoughts on that? Yes, it's definitely not one to take your mum to because there is a lot of nudity, there is a lot of quite graphic and quite unpleasant sex scenes in it where uh, Emma Stone's character just gets kind of used and abused by various men uh, until she sort of turns the tables towards the end of the film. Yeah, so def- definitely one to go in 
expecting it to earn that 18 rating which it which it does have but i, I absolutely loved it i mean this is this is by far my favorite film of this year but it could easily have been my favorite film of last year had it come out a few weeks earlier it's as lorkin said just so funny i was just bursting out with laughter almost every other line of dialogue as were most of the people in the screen with me and yeah i think it's a, a reasonable point that a lot of the characters are just sort of paper thin cutouts but when you're having this much fun it doesn't necessarily undermine it for me yeah i i enjoyed it enormously as well but i want to take a step back and um, for me this was um, a, an important film to come to cinema because it's from Alistair Gray who is one of the most important Scottish writers of the last century. Lanark is probably a landmark serialist novel of last of the last century hailed by so many um, uh, and this book came out a few, it took him 30 years to write that and then this book came out I think in the early 90s, I remember it being released it was a lot um, uh, an attack on colonialism and 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 the British colonialist past. But he's a surrealist writer with a, uh, a deep sur surrealist eye. I mean, Lanark's all over the place. It's not in order. Um, it, 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 people have growth coming out of their bodies and all sorts of things. So when I heard Lancelot was directing this, I thought, fantastic! He's the perfect director for this movie, and he does, and he is. In the, I think he channels Ken Russell, uh, Michel Gondry. There's a lot of um, really clever intent inventive cinematography and 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 storytelling very much in the style of alistair gray whom i've read by the way i'm a fan of his his books so i really enjoyed the film from that perspective coming from a, a novel that i've that I've, I've known about for some time and this is a fable first and foremost but lanthimos does turn it into a feminist it has a very strong feminist agenda which we've all recognized but it's done through the prism of sex through this this woman through emma stone and it is uncomfortable and unpleasant and sometimes not not unpleasant but it's it's overt and there are times when i i wonder if the, you know this is a film made by men tony mcnamara did the screen screenplay um it's it's very um, male driven film and sometimes i felt a little uncomfortable in that space it felt like there were there were pursuing certain agendas that another agendas were getting lost through the film but that's a criticism i'm seeing I'm, that's my only criticism i thought the language the dialogue was fantastic the three main performances are superb i think ruffalo is brilliant with his daft accent and the buffoon he is two-dimensional and he is cardboard but nonetheless i think that's he plays that very well he knows he is mm. um william defoe is sublime we expect him to be um the makeup is fantastic and i think emma stone deserves all the recognition she can get because the last thing i'll say is i thought it was very brilliant brave of her um she does expose herself literally and metaphorically in this film and I, she does it very very well so i i did like it enormously and i think it, it is a lanthimos is a superb film director i, re I really do think that um, an auteur but you know i was a little uncomfortable some of the themes and that's i think what i was trying to get at <clears throat> with my question around the exploration of emma stone's character's sexuality how that's portrayed is it done with is it done through a kind of male gaze See, is that the right thing uh, that's where i was kind of getting at with that question. I, I know and i think it's a very fair question and i reflecting on the film afterwards felt that it was and mm. th there's a scene I, I can't say too much on the radio but there's a scene quite early on um which involves fruit and um i it, have heard about this uh, uh, it, it it one i sort of felt that that was i don't know i just felt that it had a male gaze about it 
Um, but probably I'm the wrong person to ask, yours, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I, I kind of felt the opposite. I didn't feel that there was any sort of exploitative sort of titillation or anything like that. I just felt mm. uncomfortable watching mm. it. And, and maybe you're meant to. It's challenging yeah. you, right? Yeah. yeah, and it's not titillating, I don't think, in that yeah. respect. It's not, it's not, um, yes, it's... Yes, it's not titillating. There's no other way I can put it. Mm. Uh, but it's, it's. I think another theme of the movie, and it does come through strongly, and, and I might refer to another film that I'm going to talk about later, mm-hmm. um, it's, it is about flesh and, and bone and body and science. Um, it, you, it's Frankenstein, you know, uh, there is a Frankenstein element to this movie, and um, it's very much about flesh and bone, and so and that we're animals and that we're... Um, so it's, it's not sexualized in that way it's quite sort of blunt and and um you know, uh, too, um i can't quite get my words but it's not it's not titillating okay. <laughs> no okay and i, I mean lanthimos he, he you know he is kind of an auteur of the grotesque and i think mm. that that doesn't necessarily mean he's endorsing some of what's going on in the film but uh we've got to move on i, I, I could talk about that for a bit longer <laughs> but no we have to move on if you would like to see poor things it's showing at cinemas including the view the light and the arts picture house in cambridge and as you might have guessed from our conversation it is a certificate 18 mm. right moving on to something different let's talk about the holdovers <laughs> Sir, I don't understand. That's glaringly apparent. I can't fail this class. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Mr. Coates. I truly believe that you can. Every year at Barton Academy, students, faculty, and staff depart the campus for a two-week winter break. But there are always an unfortunate few who have nowhere to go for the holidays. They're known as the holdovers. Mr. Hunnam. Hello, Mary. I heard you got stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that? You know, he used to be a student, right? Yeah, that's why he knows how to inflict maximum pain on us. Directed by Alexander Payne, who's teaming up with some familiar faces from films such as Sideways, The Holdovers is a Christmas film that explores the bittersweet nature of human relationships. It stars Paul Giamatti, who we have seen in Sideways, as a mm, cranky history teacher who gets stuck looking after students holding over during the Christmas holiday, hence where the title comes from. What arises in an unlikely camaraderie with one so-called troublemaker and a grieving mother who works as the head chef at the school luke so i i'm gonna be quite honest from the get-go and say i really enjoyed this film but i am a big fan of alexander payne are you a fan and how did you find this film i'm absolutely a fan of alexander payne and i'm a huge fan of the holdovers i just wanted to pick you sort of mentioned this is a christmas film and it's kind of odd that this film has come out in january past christmas Mm. Um, I think it's important, like, this is a Christmas film in the same way that Die Hard is a Christmas <laughs> film. I don't don't want to get stuck on that very tired debate that we have. <laughs> but this is, it's a film that captures all the, the imagery of Christmas. There's, you know, there's a lot of snow and Christmas is central to the plot. It's about um, the kids who can't go home to visit their family for whatever reason, um, who are left stuck at this private school. Um, but Christmas only plays a minor role there's all the references to christmas dinners and going off to get a christmas tree this is really an alexander payne film more so than anything and the last time that we saw a film of his was downsizing six years ago which was the first real failure of his career that was the one where 
Matt Damon shrinks down and it's supposed to be some kind of political satire that gets lost in a sort of orgy of nonsense. Um, <laughs> but he's really gone back to fundamentals here. I think about um, some of his first films, like Election, and in particular, side, the connection with Sideways because of Paul Giamatti. This, um, the holdovers is, like, if this is how... If Sideways is how Paul Giamatti spent his summer, this is how he spends his winter, effectively. It's, it's a very similar character, and it's a character-driven story with the sort of person that we're very familiar to seeing in these sorts of films. It's these people who are incredibly principled to a fault. Um, <laughs> early on in the film, they sort of revealed that Paul Giamatti's sort of been punished with this task because he's refused to pass a student um, an exam at a wealthy student and he gets stuck with this assignment and he feels um, as though you know he's punished for this but he's happy to have done so and the whole film revolves around this sense of good people who can't get out of their own way and that's you see that constantly in Alexander Payne films mm. and Giamatti is wonderful in this film the dialogue is wonderful he gets these brilliant verbose um sort of lectures and discussions that's offset against the the kids i think this is a spectacular film yeah and one of the things that i might bring in here as well is is the kind of it it's a touching drama but it also has it also has comedy and there are some very silly moments that come through but it just works for me it worked really seamlessly Lorcan what's your take yeah no I agree I, I, I do disagree with Luke a little bit I think I think thematically this is very much a Christmas film it's about getting into the good spirit of like caring for your fellow man even though you come from very disparate backgrounds and finding the similarities in each other to kind of to kind of move forward um, Giamatti uh, back on form uh, I think me and Paul Thomas Anderson were probably the only two people in the world who liked downsizing <laughs> I, I, I loved the uh, descent into lunacy that, that film was but I think for me uh, I'm surprised I haven't heard quite as much buzz about uh, Devine Joy Randolph's performance. This she's on track to win the Oscar, isn't she? I hope so because she does deserve it, and this role is so calculated to give her the best possible chances because her character doesn't show up for a little while. She's at the at the start, you think she's going to be a very small supporting character you barely see, and then very slowly she plays a bigger part. She becomes a bigger kind of emotional backbone to no, not only the story but the other characters. Uh, and then by the end, you have this beautiful kind of triangle between the three of them that's really heartbreaking. Uh, and yeah, Alexander Payne back and form in terms of giving just a delightful present of an emotional package of a movie uh, with just this real visceral gut punch at the end and people are you know lots of people talking about Paul Giamatti as you mentioned there Divine Joy Randolph who I think is absolutely excellent in this film I do want to give a little shout out Matt sorry I will come to you um, because I think not many people are talking about Dominic Sessa as Angus who is mm. the student that they're all kind of that, that is also stuck in this unconventional family um, dynamic and I, I think the three of them work extremely well together in this and that's part of its success yeah, it's it's such a s strong movie for just getting these three characters and just giving them space to develop their relationships. And it's so funny and so touching and just... I mean, I'm coming at this movie as a teacher in a boarding school, not quite as posh as the one in this film, but 
the scenes at the start of Paul Giamatti just letting rip on these entitled students. I mean, unfortunately, that would get him fired pretty quickly, but <laughs> it was incredibly satisfying to watch and sort of imagine as wish fulfillment, if, if only I could act <laughs> the same way. But yeah, just, just getting three characters, not a whole lot of plot, and just seeing their relationships kind of naturally grow and develop over the course of the film. All the performances are fantastic. I didn't recognise anyone apart from Paul Giamatti, but I hope to see a lot more of, uh, as you say, Dominic Sessa. He was brilliant. Davine Joy Randolph, fantastic. Yeah, just really, really great film. Incredibly funny, and I would have no hesitation about recommending this to anyone, uh, which is not something I could say about Poor Things. Awards? It's award, is it award-worthy? Um, I've yes. been getting quite a lot of nominations. Well, I think I certainly think it is. Final word from anybody? Yeah, I think one quick thing is the period setting. We've seen quite a few of these directors of a certain age going back to these films set in their childhood. I think of um, Spielberg with Fablemans last year and Paul Thomas Anderson with Licorice Pizza. I think Alexander Payne does a much better job of depicting his own childhood in a way that's not quite so self-absorbed um i think the setting here is used to sort of make a simpler more isolated story where you know the kids aren't on tiktok or facebook during <laughs> the winter break um and i think it's i think it's really wonderful to see a director actually have a period setting that works for the, the plot super well, I think it sounds like we're all big fans of this one. If you would like to watch The Holdovers, it is showing at cinemas. It opened, I believe it opened yesterday, uh, Friday the 19th. <laughs> Sorry, I had to remember the date. It is a certificate 15. Okay, so next up we're going to talk about a film that you can watch on Netflix. This is Good Grief. I've been reading that the brain is like a muscle. That's why getting over a death is so hard because your brain has been trained to feel things for a person. When they go away, your head is still operating under the impression that it should feel those things for that person, like muscle memory. I think we'll hold off on the wheel for today. Do I look older to you? I feel like I've aged a lot. No. Yes, your husband just died, you're allowed, my God. So that's the trailer for Good Grief, which, as I mentioned, is a film you can catch on Netflix. It's the directorial debut of Dan Levy, who you may know from Schitt's Creek. It also stars Dan Levy as the main character, Mark, whose life is completely devastated by the loss of his husband. Um... What you see is he has these two best friends and they go to Paris to do some soul searching and kind of work through the grief that he's feeling. Matt, this is, as I mentioned, this is the directorial debut for Dan Levy and he's quite popular because of the success of things like Shit's Creek and, you know, um, I, for one, was quite interested to see what it would be like to see him do a film. What did you think about this, particularly seeing as it's a it's the first kind of um, his first go at filmmaking? So I'm always intrigued when a film is written by, directed by, produced by, starring the same person, because on the one hand, maybe it's going to have a really sort of clear and singular vision and be something really interesting and unique, or on the other hand, it's going to be a bit self-indulgent and they've sort of use their clout to get something made that perhaps in other circumstances wouldn't have been 
in my opinion, this is the latter of those two. Uh, I think Dan Levy clearly uh, thinks this is a really important story and is, it is a very earnest film and I got the sense that he has put a lot of his heart and soul into it. And there is a lot to like in terms of the, the way it's shot and the, the shots of Paris and just sort of wandering around. But it, I just didn't enjoy it. I just felt that all of these characters needed to get over themselves in quite a quite a big way. There's a, a scene early on which I think kind of summarised this film for me, which is at um, the funeral for uh, Dan Levy's uh, husband, who's, who's passed away uh, early on in the film. And you've got David Bradley as... Uh, the father of the, uh, the the dead husband, and he gives this in- incredibly moving speech about learning to accept that his son was not the son that he thought he was going to have, and learning to love him anyway. And I thought actually that's actually quite touching and moving, uh, and well, because of the quality acting of David Bradley. But then within that same funeral scene, you've got. Uh, an actress talking about how sad she is that the film that they were working on is not going to come out now and and that just was not something a real person would ever say because it's so tone deaf and and not particularly funny Uh, and that sort of the film was aiming for much more of the David Bradley heartfelt but it gets a lot more of the sort of tone deaf not particularly funny but also not like real people yeah all of these characters needed to get over themselves in a big way I mean, it's interesting you say that, and Luke, um, I- I'm going to say something that I felt watching this. There's a lot of talk in this film, and I understand that grief is, is super, super complex, and it's a difficult thing to explore in a film, and there are flashes of brilliance. The David Bradley um, bit that you mentioned, Matt, but there's a lot of talking that you have to l- really listen to throughout this it film. Really, it really is surprising how eloquent people can be when they're going through grief in a way that's completely like i thought that i was going insane watching this film <laughs> like dan Lee, he's a he's a good actor i rewatched um happiest season over christmas the uh, Kristen stewart film and i mean it's ostensibly a comedy but there's this one really dramatic moment daniel or dan Lee, but he's he's rebranded himself as daniel for this film because it's an important piece of filmmaking <laughs> Um, anyway, but in, he delivers this one really emotional sequence in Happy Season. I thought, I can see why he'd want to make a dramatic film. But he's just bitten off way too much here. That Most of his acting is done with his eyes. There's a lot of <laughs> blinking solemnly and sort of moving his head and shaking his head. And you, you're right, there are moments in it, so I, I don't want to... Like it's not really that fun to completely eviscerate someone, and I will credit Daniel Levy for giving it a go and doing something yeah. that he clearly is passionate about yes. for, for whatever reason. I just wish his directorial debut had been something that was really in his wheelhouse, because dialogue, script, story—it's it's not there here. And I, I think I think you're right. I think he is showing promise here, but perhaps. For, the, for example, the script needs a little bit of tightening. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the characters. I, I love Ruth Negra. I think she's an absolutely brilliant actor. But in this, her character is just insufferable. And you cannot sympathise with these people because 
it's just I don't know that is the self it's self absorbed almost. They're all far too old to be acting like this. <laughs> I, mean, I know, yeah, obviously it's incredibly hard to lose someone that you're close to, but you do just need to be a bit more of an adult about it and not just uh, behave terribly and then and then just blame it all on grief. Just there's there's one scene where they're having a conversation on a big ferris wheel and at some point someone goes oh please can we not have this conversation on a ferris wheel in paris and i'm like oh just 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 get over yourself just stop this please it's interesting you brought up like i thought ruth Negra was the best of a bad bunch oh right and I, okay and i don't think that's necessarily anything to do with her performance i think she's the most realized character or at least the least cliched one <laughs> for me this film lost me within the first few minutes where they're at this dinner they're at a party, and it's a party I don't want to be at, and you've got all these characters blathering on about these incidental characters who we've not met and will never meet, so the whole thing is pointless. And then you have Himesh Patel going, oh, you just can't meet a good guy in the city. And you think, <laughs> this, is, this is the levels that we're going at here. Um, there's one other particular moment, which is, you know, needle drops there's a sequence where they play neil young's only love can break your heart it's all this is the, the sort of level of nuance that we're getting well i mean i actually wanted more of the christmas party at the beginning but maybe that's because i'm hanging on to the joy of christmas in these dark january days and that's why i was talking about the holdovers as christmas film as well i just need more luke evans in my life well in luke general. evans yes i would have liked to have seen more luke evans too but right we, we've got to move on thank you very much so if you would like to watch good grief i mean it is something you can watch at home and like I said there is a lot of promise in it it is showing on Netflix and it is a certificate 15 we are sticking with Netflix now we've got no trailer for this one um, and we're going to be talking about Society of the Snow which is a survival thriller film directed by J.A. Bayona and it's based on the true story of the Uruguayan 1972 Andes flight disaster and it's 16 survivors mm-hmm. Nick um I think it's just you on this one. Well, I, yeah, and I'm very happy to talk about Please it. Please do. It, this is a film that's um, very close to my heart because mm. I actually knew someone whose father died in the crash. And I've known this story all my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, uh, it's from the director, J.A. A, a, J. A. Bayona, who did The Impossible, which is, um, if you saw that film, was about the tsunami in, uh, in 2004. And mm-hmm. with uh, Ewan McGregor and... I really enjoyed that film, mm-hmm. and he does a similar thing here in that he builds up a picture of of, of the old Christians, which are the, is the the rugby team that are on the um, on the plane that crashes in the Andes. Now, this has already been made into a film, alive, yes. um, by Frank Marshall, mm. um, and it's a very good. The, the Frank Marshall did a good job actually, mm. and the uh, if you've seen that film, you'll you'll know that they they picked the plane crash very very well. Um, but Frank Marshall, uh, you know, mainly a producer, you know probably you know, raises the lost ark through to the congo and all the rest of it so he he's, has an action bent to him um bayona comes at this uh, with a more humanist eye and i have to say you know it's, do we need enough books countless books about this and i don't know how much you know about this but um it's a story that you would not believe if it had been um if it was a fiction, you'd go, this would never happen. I'm not going to give plot spoilers, but I am going to say that one of the reasons uh, it became so uh, such an important story is they had no food, and they were young men, and they end up eating uh, their fellow passengers to mm-hmm. survive. Mm-hmm. And I'm, that happens early on in the film, and I mention it. I don't think it's a plot spoiler. I think anyone who is familiar with the yeah. story will yes. know that. But um, Bayona doesn't 
doesn't actually um, dwell on that too much. They, mm. We have to go through that moral conundrum. We, we go through the crash, they land, they start to starve. 45 are on the plane, 33 are alive when they crash, 16 get rescued. So the trauma and the, 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 the horror begins from day one. Mm. I mean, one person dies overnight, they're all huddled together, they're screaming, some are in agony, some are fine. Um, all of this is, Bayona is, is building this up, and then we come to the decision about whether to, to starve to death or not. He doesn't dwell on that, because the survivors themselves have said that they didn't spend a lot of time. They actually made the decision quite quickly. Yes. They were young and they wanted to live. And incidentally, there's a, coincidentally, very coincidentally, there's a four-part Channel 4 documentary on Channel 5 at the minute with the real survivors talking about their experience, mm -hmm. which is a wonderful companion piece to this movie, mm -hmm. a, as, a, as an aside. Mm -hmm. Then what Bayana does is uh, take you through the next 72 days of their trying to survive in this hell on earth, really. And he does that by... The relentless nature of trying to, to, to get through every day, have, watching people die, helping people through death. Um, there's a, the, it, it explores the humanity of the people in this situation, and they're young and they're wanting to, they're wanting to survive. The hardships that, 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 that just get put upon them and put upon them, and the despair, and the moments of hope. Maybe they're going to be rescued, maybe they're not. Um, I won't tell you, I won't, for people that aren't familiar with the story, I won't tell you exactly how they do get themselves uh, out of this uh, mess, but um, it's a very good film. It's been nominated, I see, for a BAFTA, uh, Best Foreign Language Film. I think it's uh, very deserved, it's a little too long, um, but it is a film that uh, he's it's very satisfying towards the end, and I felt that um, he did a superb job. Last thing I'll say, it did actually. Um, resonate with slightly with poor things because it is about flesh and bone and the lottery of life why some people live and some people don't is mm. is, is can be very random and uh, and I, I sort of felt it um, some kinship with poor things in that respect <laughs> okay well thank you so much I think you've talked about that really eloquently and given a great um, overview of what this film is about so if you would like to see um, Society of the Snow it is on Netflix and it is a certificate 15 Cambridge 105 Radio. On Sunday afternoons, relax with Jazz Today and Pete Butchers. Join me for music at the cutting edge. Mainly new releases, many on small independent labels. The stuff you rarely get to hear elsewhere. I'll also be keeping a watching brief on jazz events in and around Cambridge, as well as chatting to local and visiting musicians. Jazz Today at 4pm every Sunday afternoon on Cambridge 105 Radio. Go on, challenge yourself. We are the Right Choice Property Services, your one-stop solution for all your property needs. From completing that pesky list of jobs you've had since last Christmas to transforming that larger home project dream into reality, we've got you covered. Our commitment to excellence ensures that great customer service is provided and high-quality workmanship is delivered. Experience the difference with the right choice, where high standards are the only standard. Find us on Facebook, write with a W, or call 01487 842 881. Making the right choice has never been easier. Cambridge 105 Radio The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio This is Cambridge 105 Radio and you are listening to The Cambridge Film Show and we are 
we are really into our discussion of several films and we've got so many more to talk about. So let's just get on with it. Uh, next up, Mean Girls. PG-13, please. What was that? Oh Lord, it's the Queen Bee. Regina George. Don't look her in the eye! You could be really hot if you change, like, everything. I met a guy in the summer and I left him in the spring. Welcome to health and human sexuality. We'll be getting into abstinence, of course, then followed by in the spring, condoms and choking. You're learning things now that I don't know how to teach. So, me girls, right, it is time for us to revisit a teen classic, and this is the reboot of the 2004 film. What they've done is it's a musical now. I believe this is from the stage... They turned it into a stage musical, didn't they? And so the film is taking on that, but it very much follows the same story as the 2004 film. If you don't know that story, it's about Katie Heron, who finds herself mixing with the social elite at the top of the food chain when she joins an American high school. This group is ruled by Queen Bee Regina George, she's a big deal, and her minions Gretchen and Karen. Now, I'm a huge fan of Mean Girls. <laughs> I can recite the original Mean Girls pretty much word for word because I was a teenager, I think I was about 13, 14 when it came out. So I love it. And I was a little bit worried about this reboot. Luke, are you a fan of the original? Did you enjoy this one? I am a fan of Mean Girls, the 2004 film, and I mean what I'm about to say with complete sincerity. Tina Fey's script from the original Mean Girls is like Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether it's a film, a stage show, a musical, an adaptation, a amateur production of it. The story is just so indestructible <laughs> and it is filled with such memorable characters and memorable lines that you can do whatever you want with it and you're going to end up with a good film. And I think it is, it's so hard to disentangle this from the original film, um, particularly as I think they actually made a bit of a mistake in recasting. Well, Tina Fey is back in her original role and Tim Meadows is back as the principal. Yeah. Um, and so much of the film is borrowed from the original. There are lines of dialogue that are taken directly. Direct, yeah. And it is a little bit distracting for a, a mean girl's obsessive like <laughs> me to sort of go... Oh, they, they, they did it this way in this version. Oh, and they cut that line. Oh, I really like that line in the original. It's I was doing that as well. I was thinking, why did they leave that joke in, but they didn't leave that one? But, I mean, a lot of people who might be watching this won't know yeah, well, the that, 2004 Yeah, yeah that, is, that is exactly the thing. I think if you're not a complete obsessive like I am, it's not going to be a problem whatsoever. <laughs> I think you could say it's, you know, it's a best of mean girls with songs in it, which is... I, I would say the highest praise possible and I think the songs do add quite a lot to this I know mm. a lot of people have complained that so there's only about 30 minutes of singing in an almost two hour film it's quite light there's sort of one particular section where you sort of forget that it's a musical because I've got quite a lot of plot to do and they obviously couldn't <laughs> can get all that plot into song <laughs> whereas the, the original stage show I think had twice as many songs it was mm. about an hour of singing and that's there's always generally going to be the way that if you're doing an ad adaptation, like the mm. only way they could have avoided that is when they put Hamilton on Disney Plus. They just filmed the stage show and made it two and a half hours because there's there's no way they can make a two and a half hour Mean Girls film. But I mean, uh, Matt, uh, it'd be great to get your thoughts because, um, like like Luke said, this is a musical of Mean Girls and the songs. 
some of them you can really tell they're kind of Broadway. Some of them are a bit more poppy, but I didn't mind that there were songs in this, and I thought they did add something a bit different. What, what did you think? Yeah, I thought it great. I mean, you can think of this as following the same trajectory as Matilda, because Matilda was obviously a book, and then a movie, and then a musical, and then a movie of the musical, and I think Mean Girls was originally a book and has gone through the same uh, iterations. Yeah. But yeah, I thought that the music was all uh, fantastic. I think, I- I'm coming at this as someone who thinks the original Mean Girls was fine, and I don't really get why you're all obsessed with it. <laughs> But but I think that it, it I don't think this works as a standalone piece because the reason why scenes follow other scenes is because that's what happened in the first Mean Girls in its own internal world. It's just oh, and now she joins the maths team because that's what she did in the original Mean Girls film. But it doesn't necessarily make sense in this. That didn't stop me enjoying it. I thought it was fantastic. It did strike me as a bit strange that the makers seem to be concealing the fact it's a musical in much the same way as Wonka was concealed a, a secret musical. And it's almost like, well, if you made a musical, why not tell people what they're going to see? And some people might be a bit upset that they've come to see a musical and they weren't expecting that. But, yeah, I would imagine if you're going to see Mean Girls, you will enjoy this, and the songs are great, and the performances are extremely fun. So, yeah, one, big, big recommend. One, one of the, I mean, you're right, I have heard stories of people turning up and being disappointed <laughs> that it's a musical. And I also think that um, there does seem to be a bit of criticism about some of the songs, like Angry Rice, who is Lindsay Lohan in this film, is the only one who's not a trained professional singer and you can sense that with some of her performances some of the songs are a little bit auto-tuned but the rest of the cast are all professionals so Rene Rapp um, played Regina George on Broadway and Avan Tika is a professional singer I think they're both terrific Yes, they are. And I mean, I I really enjoyed it. I know they are monetizing millennial nostalgia here, but I am a millennial and I was fully for it. But I think, Matt, you raise a good point around if you're taking it as a standalone film, if you're not a huge fan of the first one or even know it, it might seem a bit random, but still good fun. You can make up your own mind if you would like to. Mean Girls are showing at the cinemas and it is a certificate 12A. Right, time for one I know Matt's really looking forward to. One more shot. Let's go. Securing that dirty bomb is the only priority. Negative on the package. No bomb. We need to evacuate everybody. Copy. Mission is a go. If that bomb goes off, everybody's dead. All teams are in position. Nothing's getting in or out. President takes the stage in 90 minutes. Okay, so this next film is One More Shot, and it's another film you can watch at home if you would like to. Um, It's it's one of those that's action-packed and a tense sort of thriller, and most importantly, it is filmed at Stansted Airport, believe it or not. Now, Matt, I'm going to come straight to you here because I know we're a little bit short on time, but you've seen the original film, which is called One Shot, which Mm. I hadn't seen when I went into this. Do you want to just tell us a little bit more about One Shot, One More Shot, what people can expect? So essentially, One Shot was a 2021 action film where uh, Scott Adkins, who I personally believe is the greatest action star on the planet, he is tasked with leading some soldiers to a military base in Poland to extract 
uh, a suspected terrorist who may know where a bomb is. They fly off at the end of one shot and fly directly into the start of one more shot, which is set in America but filmed at Stansted, which, again, I enjoyed a great deal. And it's essentially a one-shot action film, obviously not filmed in one shot but made to look like one shot in much in the same way as uh, 1917. It, it, it's not a great movie. I personally <laughs> say, yeah, you know, but I think you really enjoyed it, right? I, I enjoy, I enjoy it because I, I love Scott Atkins and I, I think that he is the greatest action star on the planet. He's made a lot of better movies than this, but there's a lot to like. It is, you know, a low budget British indie action film. You've got to respect the craft, the fight, <laughs> the fight choreography is phenomenal it's much better than i think you see in a lot of hollywood films and just because the script is a bit ropey and <laughs> that some of the performances are a bit uh off that doesn't stop it from being a really impressive piece of filmmaking especially for a british action film which you don't seem to get many of these days yeah um I, <laughs> i'm laughing because lorkin is sat next to me and he's been chuckling away <laughs> for the last couple of minutes lorkin what was your take on this oh, one? No, I, I just greatly enjoyed uh, com- comparing 1917 which i didn't even like to uh, one more shot um uh, i right james cameron will not who's arguably the you know the greatest most successful action director in the history of cinema he will not st- take one single photograph of anything. He won't start from principal photography until he has spent ages ironing out every single possible detail of the plot, the characters, how everything gels together, the set pieces. You're right, there is a lot of craft on here, and there is it is impressive. Scott Atkins has a nice presence, and he's he's doing what he does. It's lovely to see Michael J. White. I'm a huge fan <laughs> of that Spawn movie, so it's, it's <laughs> thrilling to see him on screen again. Uh, but it's just like, wh- why, not, why not get a writer? Because it's just... <laughs> It is. You can clearly see, though, just like, well, film one shot, no one cares about the plot of the characters, they just care about the action scenes. Why not get someone who can write decent characters and decent, like, storylines and plot beats? Because then not only will you care more about the action, but that writer can also create set pieces within that action. There is no set pieces. It's just boring characters talking about boring cookie-cutter things, and then it cuts to a... A decent action scene that you care nothing about because you don't care about the characters of the setting and there's nothing clever about the action scenes. It's just well-choreographed action and that's it. It's so tedious, I thought. <laughs> I think I'm being a, a little bit harsh there. I'd, I'd say that... Um well, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to try and argue that Scott Adkins is a great actor. That's not what he does. He does the sort of military martial arts stuff. And, and my criticism of this was he doesn't get to do enough of his martial arts things because there is a sort of... They're trying to stay much more grounded. If you watch one of his sort of older martial arts films, you'll get to see a lot more of his physical presence. But, uh, yeah, so Waleed Algadi, I wanted to shout out as actually putting in a decent actual performance in this. Just for our local audience, am I correct in saying this is largely set at Stansted Airport? It's all filmed at Stansted Airport, yeah. And I think, I think for me, I found watching it, it, I think I felt it felt like a video game to me. Mm. But I'm, I'm not sure because you seem quite, um, let's say, annoyed by the fact that it's tedious and it's just action, but not much else. But I was kind of, I was going along with it. I was mm. okay with action for however long the film was, an hour and forty minutes. But I think that's because. I knew what to expect and it was kind of fun watching that fight choreography and going along and recognising bits of Stansted Airports and you can stick up as many American flags as you want (laughs) but that is clearly Stansted Airport. And and speaking of the filming at Stansted Airport apparently they only have between midnight and 3am to film on each day so... I did wonder how they filmed it so there we go. I mean... 
you, as I as you know, it's one of those films. Expect a lot of action. <laughs> Perhaps not much else, but if you would like to watch it, it is on Sky Go on Now TV. or Now TV, and it is a certificate fifteen. Okay, coming up, boys in the boat. There are some moments in life you never forget. The depression hit everyone hard. No jobs, no food. We were broke. Looks like you still owe a balance on this semester. So what, what's that about making some money? You're the wrong team. You're on it, you get a part-time job included, you place to live. Eight-man crew is the most difficult team sport in the world. The average human body is just not meant for such things. Most of you will not be chosen. Beautiful speech, coach. Okay, so our next cinematic endeavour takes us to The Boys in the Boat, which is a sports drama set during the Great Depression, and it's about the 1936 US Olympic rowing team. It's directed by none other than George Clooney. Um, Lorcan, so as I mentioned, this is a bit of a sports historical biography. What can we expect here? Does it offer anything different to the sort of typical film of this nature you might see absolutely not it does exactly what a sports <laughs> film should do which is uh, make me feel horrible about my body shape and want to immediately go to the gym and work on myself and then as soon as i leave the cinema just completely forget about it but um this is exactly what i was hoping it would be a very very comfortable solid formulaic uh sports movie about underdogs rising up i was surprised just quite how far they rise up i wasn't expecting the, the scale of the film to expand quite the way it did but i was glad i didn't know much about it i thought Callum Turner does a really fantastic job elevating uh, kind of flimsy material that he's given. Joel Edgerton's always a professional. He always likes doing something kind of, kind of off-key. Um, and, yeah, no, it's just an exciting, uh, particularly well-shot. George Clooney hasn't done anything that's interested me since his first film, which is Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, I think, which mm. is fairly experimental. Mm. Everything else he's made I found incredibly boring. This is boring, but it's, uh, the tension ramps up appropriately, and he does mix up the shots. There's some beautiful overhead shots, so you can like clearly see how the boats are progressing against each other. And I was thoroughly entertained and satisfied. Satisfied. Comfortable. Mm. Boring. Mm. Matt, <laughs> what did you need? Well, I was I was quite looking forward to this because I'm I'm a big fan of sports movies and, and I don't care that they're predictable. Uh, but the the issue I have with with rowing as the subject of a sports movie is they're just rowing <laughs> and there's no there's no sort of variety and you can't as an untrained person tell whether someone's rowing well or rowing poorly. And in in this film, it just felt kind of arbitrary because they they start off and they're not very good, and then suddenly they become good. And then one of them has a bit of a hissy fit for some reason, then suddenly they're not good again. But then they're good, and then they go to the Olympics, and we get the fantastic finale overseen by Hitler. So you've got a, quite a standard sports movie finale cutting to different people watching the race. But one, one of those people is Hitler, not looking very happy about what's going on. Uh, yeah, I was saying this, this would be a two-star movie to start with, but that ending did, did get it. Get an extra star for me. Uh, okay, so um, I, that's something then that people might want to see at the cinemas. If you're looking for that kind of inspirational sports tale, yeah, no, it's yeah. it's it's very uplifting and it's, it's very honest and it's it's very much just kind of like you know work out what you want and you can achieve your goals. <laughs> yeah, and I, I to be honest, I don't really know much about the team behind this, so 
maybe it's one I will go and see. It's the, showing at the, this. The strange thing about this is it's billed as the unbelievable true story, but they have a rowing race and they win it. Seems pretty believable. Pretty believable. To me. <laughs> okay, well, it, it's showing at cinemas and it is a certificate 12A if you do want to see the boys in the boat. And we will move on now to the beekeeper. You're a blessing, Mr. Clay. This place was crabgrass and weeds and you brought it back to life. Mrs. Parker and I were friends. She was like family. She was the only person who ever took care of me. I just got a message saying that there's a problem with my computer. Yes, ma'am, we got this. Yesterday she shot herself. This is private property. Do you know what they do here? Scamming the weakest in our society? Buddy, I'm counting to three. One, two, three. There, I did it for you. I'm going to burn this place to the ground. Okay, so now we're going to be talking about The Beekeeper, which is directed by David Ayer, who I believe did the 2016 Suicide Squad and also directed Fury from about 10 years ago. It stars Jason Statham, and it's about a man's brutal campaign for vengeance as taking on national stakes after it's revealed he's a former operative of a powerful and clandestine organisation known as The Beekeepers. My first question to you, Matt, about this is going to be, it stars Jason Statham. There is, there's something that I now expect whenever I see that Jason Statham is in a film. Are we getting much of the same here? Yes, this is a Jason Statham film starring Jason Statham doing Jason Statham things and actually looking quite bored doing it. However, for me, this this does go into so bad it's good territory to the extent that I could cautiously recommend it. It is terrible, but in a hilarious way. Jason Statham is simultaneously a beekeeper, as in a secret agent whose job is to protect the hive, the hive being society. But he's also a literal beekeeper who keeps bees. And there's no reason why he needs to be both of those. Uh, And yet he is. The film actually opens with quite an emotional sort of inciting incident of um, Jason Statham's landlord or friend, uh, who's an older lady getting scammed out of her life savings by a sort of fishing group. And then immediately killing herself, which was quite a a shocking thing for her to do. And then Jason Statham walks in, thinks, I'm not very happy about this. I'm going to go and burn down the call centre, which he then does, with really no resistance at all. No one can do anything against Jason Statham in this film, and I think that's, that's the problem, because there's no sense of threat. I'm pretty sure he's got it in his contract that he can't be made to look weak at all, and he wins basically every fight with no trouble whatsoever even when they send another beekeeper against him he kind of just murders them with no with no real sense of uh, peril there are things to like about it mm-hmm. uh, jeremy irons is having great fun as wallace westworld i feel like i'm learning that name for the first time as the head of security for for josh hutcherson who's this sort of evil slimy crypto bro also having a great time yeah this film was terrible yet fun Terrible yet fun, and you know I like a bit of a, a tale of vengeance. And it, does it does it satisfy that at least? 
Yeah, I think I think it does because the the inciting incident of the uh, woman uh, getting scammed and then killing herself. Okay, while that's a bit of an overreaction, you can sort of imagine you know a, a parental figure who's not very tech savvy getting caught in caught up by getting called by someone saying, "Oh, I'm tech support. You know, your computer's been hacked. You need to tell us this to to get it sorted." Uh, Jason Statham has a fantastic line early on where he's sort of getting angry about this and he says, when people do things to kids, they've got to deal with the parents. But when someone does something to an older person, there's no one to look out for them except me. Brilliant. Sold. Okay, so if you want to watch The Beekeeper, it is showing at cinemas right now and it is a certificate 15. Okay, so our last film of today is Roleplay, which is directed by Thomas Vincent. It stars Kaylee Cuoco and David Oyelowo as a couple who are keeping sort of secrets from each other. And um, over the course of the film, you find out what those are. I'm, I'm going to move on because we, we don't quite have time for the trailer. So, Nick, I'm going to come straight to you because I know you said you had something that you would like to say well, about uh, this. Uh, it, the beekeeper may have been rubbish, but fun. This is just rubbish and not much fun, I'm afraid. Uh, and I, it's, it, it's just... It's a bit boring, to be honest. A contract killer, um, as you say. Uh, she's been lying to her husband and the kids um, uh, about what she does, which is essentially kill people. Um, she's smirking at him over the kitchen table while she's talking to her handler. Um, we're supposed to root for this woman. And then we find out, who does she kill? Well, the la her last target, we find out, was a, um, a union leader in South America. Well, isn't that funny from an Amazon Pro Prime-directed uh, <laughs> film? That uh, She's fighting the anarcho-syndicate. Of, uh, of, of South America to prevent unionism. Ha ha, Amazon, <laughs> I take note. Um, and anyway, we're supposed to, to root for this blooming awful twerp. And then, uh, and then, oh. bo 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 Boyega, no, Boyega, um, Oluwayo, he says, oh, I'm in love with her. My friend, run for the hills. She's a lunatic and a psychopath. Have nothing to do with her. Um, but unfortunately, um, it's all lovey dovey, happy marriage stuff. And um, it's I want to say it's fairly, fairly harmless, except I don't think it is. I think they're fighting the unions. Yeah, Matt, and I think for me, I found that the story was a bit random, didn't really make much sense. I'm not, I, I feel bad saying this, but I said before we did the show that I didn't find Kaylee Cuoco that believable as this sort of stone cold contract killer. So, mm, bit of a miss for me. What do you think? Yeah, it's, it's a real shame. It's an action comedy that's extremely light in both departments. Just the basic building blocks of the film just don't make sense they talk about how they've been together for seven years but they clearly have a 10 or 11 year old child together and just lots of things like that we don't really believe Kaylee Cuoco is an assassin at any point uh, David Oyelowo doesn't seem to realize he's in a comedy uh, Kaylee Cuoco at least attempts to do some jokes but I think all she manages is saying Bob Lots of times when Bill Nye turns up. <laughs> oh, yes, it has Bill Nye, yeah, Bill which Nye. I thought was also very random. Yeah, Bill Nye's doing his best, but he, even he can't salvage this. It, this is a, a two-star film, but in terms of enjoyment, it's a zero-star film. Uh, give me the glorious failure of the beekeeper any day of the week over this absolute dross. Well... We might have to leave it there. It doesn't look like there's much more to say on it. Well, Bill, Bill, Bill Nye, I suppose, does do a bit of Bill Nye, and, and he is quite amusing in it. Um, but, uh, but even he does seem like an unlikely uh, killer. Because uh, there's nothing to him anymore. He's, he's raked thin. Oh, oh well. It was nice to see Bill Nye while he was there. Anyway. Always nice to see Bill Nye. <laughs> you may still want to see Roleplay. It is on Amazon Prime, so you might want to give it a shot. Um, 
And that actually is our last film of the show. <laughs> so thank you very much, everyone. And thank you all for listening to us today. Our next show is going to be on Saturday, the 3rd of February. And I believe we'll be covering films such as All of Us Strangers, The Colour Purple and Argyle. We're going to take you out with Hit Me With Your Best Shot by Pat Benatar. Thank you very much and goodbye. The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio.